UK Motor Talk. The launch of the 2019 Silverstone Classic. I'm Graham, and uh, welcome to the newest member of our team, Phil. Uh, and we're going to have a walk around and have a look at some cars, and we'll just have a chat. I'm looking forward to uh, describing some of the cars that are here and listening to some real engines for a change. It's nice that uh, Marlboro McLaren just gone past us. This is the uh, Masters series. They're just pulling back into the pits, uh, and they've just been out uh, testing and uh, doing some times. Anyway, let's... Uh, walk away from the uh, spectacular wing building here which if you've been to Silverstone in recent years is uh, it really dominates the skyline around here but let's uh, go and have a look at some of the cars that are gathered together here there's a, a, apparently 140 cars here today on this launch day because it's um, it's that's a, it's a Williams Saudia Williams just gone past us is that the, the, the 07 or the 08 07, I think that's an ex um, Alan Jones car. But it's, uh, it's a beautiful day. Um, considering what it was like when we first got here this morning when it was freezing cold, it's now windy but slightly warmer. We're standing here in beautiful sunshine, looking up at beautiful blue sky and enjoying the, uh, the view of all the cars. They brought all these cars together, well, for two reasons. I think they've, they've persuaded all the drivers to come here to show off their cars uh, on this uh, media day. Uh, on the basis that they can also have a couple of hours in the morning and a couple of hours in the afternoon practicing so they can shake down the cars ready for later on and uh, if it's free testing then it's very cheap testing now here's a car this is just an example of the cars that are parked in the car park a very nice uh, Aston Martin I think this is the new Vantage isn't it what a beautiful car that is yeah it's very clean Apart from a few um, places where they haven't got all the polish off of it, but uh, yeah, very, very good-looking car. They they just get prettier and prettier, uh, the the Astons. Uh, Silverstone's fire truck parked next to it. They're obviously not expecting a problem with that. It just happens to be in the same place at the same time. There's an awful lot of big trucks here because, you know, the, the historics now are very much still growing. More and more money coming in. More and more cars appearing. You know, all these cars that were once upon a time in private collections or in in uh, museums dotted around the globe, they're all racing again. I think that's brilliant. Yeah, and in order for them to be out, they have to have this chance to go on track and to have a free test day is, um, you know, priceless, really, because they can look, see if they've got any problems um, before they start to put them into competition. That way they can iron out any problems, check on setup. Um, checking that everything's working properly and they haven't got any engine gremlins or gearbox gremlins we've seen a few gearboxes apart this morning obviously somebody's had some problems and they've had to change ratios etc but uh, other than that we ought to say that uh, Phil brings a considerable degree of expertise to comments like that because he was uh, for a number of years working for West Surrey Racing in touring cars and has worked on well all kinds of cars imaginable over Go on, how many years have you been in the motor trade? Um, since 1974. <laughs> yes, four, 45 years this year, there you go. That's a, that's a long apprenticeship to serve. Yes. So we're still amongst the uh, 
the race transporters and as I say that they're, they're just getting bigger and more and more expensive you commented that um, we were looking down at them from the balcony earlier some of them have dirty roofs uh, yes, you know, uh, certainly some of the team bosses wouldn't have allowed that no my old team boss Dick Bennett's at West Surrey Racing would not have approved of having a dirty roof on a truck um, one of his um, things is the truck advertises the team and if the truck is clean and looks good it it bodes well for the rest of the team and it's it is your billboard yeah. it carries all your sponsors it carries your team name and it's there to promote your business and as as famously uh, the story goes of ron when he was ron dennis when he was running mclaren you know when the when the transporters have been emptied out of the grand prix then all the trucks would be lined up in order of number plate because he had all the consecutive number plates uh, mcl and uh, he would make sure that all the wheels were the right way up with the tyre sponsor's name uh, right on the top so everybody could see it. So we come into that part of the paddock which has a selection of Capris. Interesting because it's, it's, it's such a diverse mixture. There's some road-going Capris here from sort of 1.6s to, well, we'll talk a little bit later about some of the out-and-out -out championship ones, but there's a Rogue in here which I hadn't spotted because I hadn't looked closely at it, but you did. It uh, purports to be a Zach Speed Capri, um, but because of the um, height of the front splitter, it's a, I, that's what made me look at it a bit closer. It's actually a road car. I don't think I would like to drive it on the road. Um, as we discussed earlier, it probably puts a target on you for every single police patrol car, wondering what the hell you're driving this on the road for. But it's very well done, very well executed. Um, it's an amazing piece of kit. If a chap has done it himself, he's made a blooming good job of it. Um, but as I say, it looks a bit odd with nearly half six inches clearance underneath the uh, front splitter, which should be about two inches, probably less, if it was a race car. Yes, fortunately they don't put many humps on, on race circuits, or if they do, they don't do it intentionally. Um, whereas uh, the council's... Put them everywhere these days to slow everybody down. So, yes, it's a slightly jarring note on this, but then, uh, as you quite rightly say, Phil, it would be a target for for uh, the gentleman of the uh, law just about anywhere on the planet would want to pull this in and have a close look at it and make sure it was road legal. Having said that, there's a chap not very far from where I live in East Sussex who's got a road-going Ferrari Formula One car, a Michael Schumacher-era car, uh, built... It's not got a Ferrari engine, so it doesn't sound quite right, but it, it looks exactly like a Ferrari F1 car, but it is road legal. Because I stopped it one day to have a look. <laughs> well, going back to the Capris again, I myself had a Mark II Capri back in the day. Um, found it very entertaining, a little bit tail-end happy, but uh, it was a, a fantastic car. Unfortunately, I had to get rid of it when children came along because it was not really the sort of car you'd want to get a baby seat in the back. Uh, they weren't designed for families, I don't think. Um, uh, very much a, a two-person <laughs> car, even though it had four seats. Um, you needed to have uh, very little, uh, very short legs to get into the back. So maybe for a slightly older child, but for those in a baby seat, definitely not. What have we got next up here? Some TRs. Some... Uh, Rather nice sixes. By the looks of one of them I noticed earlier had a, a, a really hugely appropriate number plate. A TR 
641. I'm just going to talk to this gentleman who's just putting the hood down on it, so I'm guessing it's his. Sir, your name, sir? Dave Burgess. And this is obviously your TR6. It is. And uh, it is for one. And it is for one. And I'm the one. <laughs> <laughs> uh, perfect number plate. Did you buy the number plate with the car or separately? No, no. no, I bought the car from America in about 2010. Totally restored it. And while I restored it, that came on the market. And over a period of time, I managed to get it to a price that was acceptable. <laughs> so what did it cost you in the end? Uh, less than £2,000. Well, that's that's pretty good for a number plate like that that fits so perfectly. Yeah. Beautiful cars. You say uh, restored in the States? No, no, restored here. Bought back from the States. It was a chocolate brown, Sienna brown in the States. It was in good condition from a body and chassis point of view. No corrosion anywhere. But I absolutely not and bolted it. Every individual component part has been stripped and rebuilt, put back together again. And it does about somewhere between five and 10,000 miles a year throughout Europe. It's been to the very top of Norway, to the south of Spain, right down into Italy, all through the Alps, Austria, going to Slovenia and Italy again this year, and into Spain again this year. Oh, it's, it's exactly what it should be. It's a car that you've lavished an awful lot of time and money and love on, and there it's repaying that by taking Absolutely. you wherever you want to go. Yep. Never breaks down, never misses a beat. Goes like a bomb. Good stuff. Well, thank you for your time. Much You're appreciated. Welcome. Thanks. Right, Austin Healy 3000s, only a couple there. Uh, shall we have a look at the minis? Yeah, very, very early minis. Well, it's not actually called mini, it's an Austin 7, which no, is what they were yeah. called in 59 when they were, when they were launched. Yeah, it's a very early car in the light powder blue. Um, amazing restoration, I would imagine, because I can't see the, the, the bodywork will have lasted this long, but uh, if it's a very low mileage example, it's very, very good. Still got the cross-ply tyres on it. Probably handles like a pig. Um, doesn't grip very well in the corners, but uh, that's what they had in the day. That's what they were designed to have, so there you go. The younger members of our audience won't, of course, have any understanding of cross-ply tyres at all. Um, they were, I think to say the least, wayward. Yes. Uh, one of my abiding memories is driving a, on the road uh, a C-type Jaguar which was a replica but authentic in as much as it had all the right bits, the right period and so on and so on. But it was on Dunlop Racing cross plies and every roundabout was, was a, a sort of exercise in guessing where it might end up. Yeah, they weren't very um, directionally stable, shall we say. Compared to the modern radial tyres, you had to go where the tyres took you rather than where you wanted to go. It, it always amazed me that anybody could have won Le Mans uh, in a C-type, given the, the, those tyres, but then that just goes to show the difference in driving ability between uh, somebody like Sterling and somebody like me. You know, they could at least drive those cars. But, but going back to the tyre technology, the radial technology hadn't appeared, so the only technology they had was cross-ply tyres, and they had to get used to it. And then when radial tyres came along, it was a whole different ball game. It everything just went up a notch you could actually go into a corner and come out where you wanted to come out and not where you ended up i'm just going to bring you an oral delight because it's just about to go past us and this is a very very early bentley it being the centenary of bentley this year and being celebrated here
Yeah, doesn't that sound delightful? Well, there's another one just across here, so we we just go and have a look at this. Now, I think this is the famous, legendary old number one, because you've still got number one on the side. And this is 28 or 29, I can't remember exactly. But it is a quite spectacular ex blower Bentley, exactly as, well, they won Le Mans in 29, did they not? They did, certainly. Um, with a supercharger on the front to try and give them a little bit more of an advantage over what they were trying to beat, this particular car actually came in this morning with a trailer with a current racing Bentley on it, uh, which was quite a spectacular sight to see. Um, a modern-day race car being towed in by a 1920s blower Bentley. So you don't see that very often. A, a 90-year-old car pulling a probably nine-month-old car. <laughs> it's a, really quite extraordinary. We're getting in this gentleman's way. Let's let him take some photos. But this is... Um, it's a it's a beautiful, absolutely beautiful motor car, which has been... Well, it's not been restored. It's, it, it's about as authentic as it can get. Uh, and one of the things I love about it, and I pointed this out to Phil earlier, was the, the brass switches, domestic light switches. People spend millions on restoring these cars, but this one, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's so period. I, I mean, I suspect some of this paintwork is many, many years old, if not original. You know, it's not set out to be perfect, although that's a... That's a new tonneau cover, obviously. But the period tyres and everything about it is period, apart from the fire extinguisher. It has a very bespoke um, tow bar on it, which um, is what can only say fairly structural. You couldn't go into Helford's or your local tow bar centre and pick this up, obviously, because it just wouldn't exist. And it's been done so that this vehicle was able to tow the newer vehicle in this morning. To try and describe the tow bar, it's actually a piece of what I would only class as structural steel that, that bolts from the front spring hanger of the rear suspension onto the rear chassis and then a, a substantial three-inch square block of steel tube at the back to drop down to the tow bar. It's even wired in. It's got all the modern electrics and I wouldn't want the job of fitting it, personally. I, I can't imagine that that is a period fitting. It's a somewhat later edition, although um, I think it was Ettore Bugatti, if I remember rightly, who did, uh, who did say that these things were basically just a, a high-speed truck. Um, but, the, you know, the engineering, by comparison with the jewels that he was producing at that point, were um, a little bit agricultural, but they were fast, they were robust, they lasted they would do the distance and they would do the distance very quickly and as you say they did um, they did win for a number of years that's how Bentley built their reputation yeah they used to have a practice of sending out one car which was very very fast and the other teams the teams they were trying to beat had no option but to send out one of their cars or both of their cars to try and catch that particular vehicle unbeknown to them that car that they sent out was never designed to finish the race it was to drag the opposition out and in order to um, weaken the opposition, shall we say. Nine times out of ten, the car that they designed to put out first um, would last maybe 12, 15 hours. Then it would blow up. And along the way, 
it would take out some of the opposition because they just couldn't keep up. Unbeknown to them, this car was never designed to finish the 24 hours. The one that did actually finish the 24 hours was slightly less tuned, slightly less pushed, and uh, ended up winning the race. So that's how they did it. And it was, it's been carried on quite a few times since by other teams yes. at the mall quite learned successfully. <laughs> the other thing that, uh, that they did do, which was interesting, these days you see massive trucks full of spares of all kinds of, of, of bits and pieces. They would drive one or two other Bentleys down to the race with them. They would have them scrutineered anyway, even though they didn't intend even to enter them. They would simply be there to be raided for spares. They were, they were effectively cars ripe for cannibalisation. Yes, this, that was quite common in the early days because obviously trucks weren't, weren't commonplace. So to take another car, which is basically a road car, because the cars of those days were based on road cars, you could strip and take bits off of road cars to put on your race car to get it to the end of the 24 hours. So basically then you would put maybe the broken parts or the slightly less broken parts back onto the road cars to get them back to the UK or wherever they were, wherever they were based. Let's go and have a walk into the uh, pit lane area. And just walk through, you can hear the cars running through at the moment and then the next next batch getting ready to go out. Uh, we're in garage number 15 of 42. And excuse me shouting, but I'm trying to be heard. And then we walk into the live pit lane. And yes, it ain't half noisy, Mum. And we've got some very, very big uh, ex-Le Mans cars and uh, of the sports car of the Le Mans type going through at the moment. I think um, enough of the noise here. Let's walk back through the pits with Aston Martin racing guys just in front of us. So I think it's the Aston Martins that are currently out on the, out on the track. Right, let's have a look see what we've got in this particular garage. These are rather older racing cars. Uh, a very old, well we've just been talking about Aston Martins and this is uh, a very elderly Aston Martin. I wouldn't even like to guess how old this is. Early 30s, late 20s? Could be early 30s, late 20s, yes. Drum brakes, possibly cable brakes. Um, not not the best, uh, very vague, I would imagine. Uh, and cycle, cycle mud guards, as they all did then. Pardon? Cycle mud guards. Cycle mud guards, yeah. Uh, not much weatherproofing. You would get rather wet racing one of these in their day. But then that was the way everybody got wet. If it was raining, you just carried on. Some would have carried a mechanic with them as ballast and maybe to repair the car should it be needed, but uh, it's quite commonplace in its day to have an onboard mechanic. Well, not, not, so, uh, not so long before they were uh, still carrying a mechanic to pump the fuel, pressurise the fuel, pressurise the oil. Another beautifully authentic car. And now we're heading for the uh, 
the historic Formula One cars, the Masters Series. I've just seen the name of Eddie Cheever on this, the one just being pushed past us. He was a, a great driver, it sort of outgrew the cars. It's, he was so tall that uh, he could no longer fit in the cars, it really ended his career. Some of, some of the cars he actually raced in, I think the front of the fuel tank had to be moulded as part of his seat and he would carry extra fuel under his legs because of the lost capacity in the fuel tank. Probably not a good idea, but uh, to get him in the car, they needed to do that. This is, uh, I think uh, Eddie was something like 6'3". You know, basically, if you look at the current Formula One guys, while well, right, they've all bulked up a bit over this winter, but they're still average height of about 5'6", five, 5'7", five, because they couldn't get in the car otherwise. No, back in those days also, the, the driver's feet and ankles were in front of the front axle line, which they're not allowed to be now, so it's much safer these days, plus most of these cars are of an aluminium monocoque. In particular, there's a David Purley car from Leck Engineering, which was based in Bogner. Um, David Purley famously had a very bad accident here, carried on through the Beckett's complex when the throttle stuck open and went straight into the barrier. Um, he broke a, quite a considerable amount of bones in his body in that accident. And I believe he, his body was subjected to in excess of 170 G which is quite incredible that he survived. Uh, it is extraordinary he survived and, and went back to racing after some, some uh, period of recovery. Um, but it was re regarded as, I think, one of the highest speed accidents that ever been on a UK circuit. I think it's something like 120-some-odd miles an hour, the zero in... 120 some odd miles an hour to zero in something like 30 inches. Uh, there's another name just caught my eye, Tommy Byrne there. Uh, a a well-known uh, and very good racing driver from the past who uh, really never sustained a long-term career. Having said that, another name here, body part off this Marlborough, uh, John Watson. And of course John is uh, still with us. And... Um, had a, a long career after his racing career uh, as a commentator and general pundit. Yes, he did. I think he, he won the uh, Dallas or Detroit Grand Prix back in its day. Um, this car, I think, is a very early carbon monocoque construction with a Cosworth DFV in the back. Um, looks like it's been uh, well and truly rebuilt, um, as most of these cars have, but... Uh, it's in excellent condition in the old Marlborough livery. Yeah. Um, very, very bright. Nice to see those colourways. Um, that, that particular, I was going to say circuit, of course it wasn't a circuit because the American Grand Prix over that period were, were basically all street circuits and uh, they, they, sometimes they, they were just literally a car park with a load of concrete blocks in. You know, they, they were incredibly dangerous. Yeah, and there was no runoff area. I think catch fencing was in at the time, which was probably one of the worst things that were ever invented for stopping cars. We went after that to gravel traps, and these cars, this, this particular car is an early ground effect car, because yeah. it's got side skirts on it. 
So it uses underbody venturis in order to suck the car to the, to the track. So most of the downforce is not done by the front or rear wings, but done by the underbody itself. This, I mean, this, this was a historically very important car in its day and a very successful Formula One car uh, and the precursor of, a, of, of several seasons of for, Formula One design. It, it led the way for a number of years in, in, in that sort of design. Let's uh, move back out a little bit. We can find a, a safe way out. Well, at the Silverstone Classic launch, and one of the things that they're celebrating this year is the 60th anniversary of the Mini, and Steve Neal, John Rhodes, two of the great exponents of Mini racing, the tyre smoking, the giant killing, all of the things that were done then, you, you just beat everything, including each other from time to time. You had to. Your teammate, you had to beat your teammate. And this guy, was, he kept me on my toes, I can assure you. Do you see it that way? Well, I, I'd say it was the other way around. Yes, <laughs> I, I'd got to back him up, I thought. You know, that's why I wasn't quite as quick as him. <laughs> I had to look after the Fords, make sure they didn't bash him off. In all those mixed saloon races, you, you were just faster everywhere than, than the, the giant galaxies, the Falcons, oh. all of those monsters that would lumber past you perhaps on the straights and you would nip past them in every corner. We had a wonderful professional team. I mean, John Cooper then was Formula One, top of the Formula One. And we had Formula One treatment, mechanics. Nothing was too much trouble. And we had six cars to beat these one-offs like broad speed and so on. And that was quite tricky, I can assure you. Because you can't spend the sort of money or time on six cars than you can on one. Talk to me about John. He was a great character. I mean... Formula One, but he went through everything, and of course, he was the man that saw initially the potential in these things as soon as they were launched. Yeah, and of course, I think we, we uh, came to around John Love and Tony Max initially, and they're doing very well. But I think when we took over for four years, it was a really professionally run team. It felt it, and it was. The turnout of the cars, they look absolutely brand new every time out. Well, they also won everything just about every time. They did. But as I say, it wasn't easy because we had people with one car to maintain and they were not doing the whole season. We, did, we were doing 26 races a year. Well, that was hard to keep in front of these guys, which we did. Yep. Now, now we've jumped a generation because uh, Steve Neal, Matt's dad, uh, and Matt is, is a champion again in, in, in touring cars and the world of touring cars has moved on. Oh, yes, absolutely. I... Uh still team principal there and uh, it's going well but the start of the year wasn't the best start we've had but no, indeed. <laughs> it's, it's a bit of a nonsense these uh, we've got three different sorts of tires for and I try to argue that have let's have one tire the hard tire but as it is we've got soft tires we've got hard tires we've got intermediate tires it's very confusing I am become uh, become something of a a lottery, much as it is in Formula One yeah. and other Formula, yeah. where they've done this same thing. Yeah, it's trying to equalise it, but it doesn't equalise it in the end. <laughs> do, you, do you miss the old days, though, by comparison? Well, Steve bred Matt, <laughs> so you can imagine. You know, Steve driving was tough, and obviously it's gone down the line to Matt. Yeah. Yes, he does have a bit of a reputation. Family. <laughs> it's all in the genes, as they say. Yeah, it's absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> Are you enjoying your day, gentlemen? Yeah, very much. Very nice. I say it's, it's, this will be shown from a hot summer's day 
today is not a hot summer's day. Oh, indeed, no, no, we're, all, we're all freezing. <laughs> I shake your hand, but my hand's likely to fall off if I do. <laughs> Thank you very much for your time, gentlemen. Thank you very much. You know, we're getting towards the end of the day now, and I guess some of the guys are beginning to put the cars away. Now, you were a tyre man for a while for uh, West Surrey Racing. I was just, a tyre technician, yeah. Yeah, just, just describe some of the tyres here. You know a hell of a lot more about them than I do. Well, you've got slick tyres, so you, you would think um, they don't have any tread on them at all, but they do. The whole tyre is the tread. They do have um, holes in them which give you the tread depth. That's how you tell the depth of the tread. Also, you've got here we've got wet tyres, which you can see the depth of the tread, and the, the large blocks which move around, and that's why they burn out when they're not run with water. The slick tyres... Um, we were saying earlier we were talking about why the cars go offline when they finish a race this is basically to pick up as much rubber um, gravel debris on the tires not only to raise the ride height because there may be a ride height restriction there may be a weight restriction and the more weight you can pick up on the tire the heavier the car is going to be when it comes to be weighed right let's keep moving Ah, it's an RS500 Cosworth Sierra. Now, this, uh, this Bastos car, I seem to remember, was a European car yeah, rather European than a touring British cars. touring car. But there is an ex-touring car, British touring car, car here. But this was a very successful car, I seem to remember. It was. They were in excess of 500 horsepower when they raced, and nothing could touch them. But it was back in the days when the British Touring Car Championship had different classes... And they didn't, because they were always the fastest car, they didn't always necessarily win the championship because they had like a handicap system. But uh, it's a very good example. It's even got the tie down wheel nuts um, so that it can be put onto a trailer, replacing the normal wheel nuts because you don't want to be trying to get a ratchet strap through what is basically a honeycomb wheel. It would be impossible and you'd probably damage the wheel anyway. Now, I have to say, I, I've never driven one of the 500s, but I drove several of the road-going ones, including uh, a, a semi-track one many, many years ago at Alton Park. And uh, that was a, a fascinating drive, a real handful. I've just noticed uh, a couple of interesting names. Yeah, but Wynn Percy, Bernd Schneider, and two names. I don't know uh, Gianfranco Brancatelli. Uh, so well, but I think there's an illustration there, the fact that these were European touring cars. But this one's had its running around for the day, is now going back on the trailer. We've got a Saudi Williams. Yeah, no, that's uh, that's a, a very, very interesting car. Uh, one of the classic F1 cars of its day. I think we weren't sure whether this was an 07 or an 08. Oh, this is a Keki Rosberg car. There we are, so Nico's dad. So that will make it an eight rather than a seven, I think. But it looks like they may be going out again in this. Uh, it's uh, some more fuel they're putting in there, so... Uh, some high-octane fuel going. Yeah, it uh, does uh, smell quite, uh, quite wild. There's a, what looks like an ex-Jackie Stewart F1 car here. Neatly laid out in, in sections.
So we're here at the launch of the Silverstone Classic. We're talking to Paul Stewart, son of the legendary racer Sir Jackie, and of course, founder, co-founder with your dad of the uh, F1 team of the same name. But uh, despite all of those successes that you had with the team and which dad had, he's now thrown his weight behind the Alzheimer's Research UK charity, something you're here to champion today. Indeed. Well. What, what actually has happened is that my father started a, 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 a charity called Race Against Dementia, which uh, really was uh, because of my mother being diagnosed with, uh, with, with this illness. And um, as he basically got his head around trying to ultimately wanting to find a pill that would solve dementia and then realizing it was more complex than that, as everything grew together, then Alzheimer's Research offered to work with my father's organisation, Race Against Dementia, to sort of to, to give the the, the, the depth and, um, and and knowledge of their experience, so that they could work together and hopefully help in the crusade to help dementia and Alzheimer's be cured one day. Because see, I mean, when it hits at home, then you really feel you need to do something about it. And he really stepped up to the to the plate in a very big way and was very very public in his support for initially his charity and now this charity yeah of course they're here together so it's very it's a partnership is what it is and uh, when you're affected by something especially in a family and an illness is how prevalent it is and and, and how serious and widespread the problem is and uh, if in some way uh, my mother's illness and, and my father's energy and, and, and success can be brought together in a positive fashion to, uh, to help others uh, with this problem, then it will be good. It's all about bringing hope to other families because it's like the big C in, in, in one sense. It, it's, it's a, vast, it's a vast, vast issue. There's so many aspects of dementia and there's so many avenues of, 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 uh, of research. And um, the, the answer won't be found by one particular piece of research. They all trigger one flow, if you like, uh, towards that, 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 that the ultimate aim of, like chemotherapy did maybe for cancer one day, you know. Uh, the effects of, of, of dementia uh, is, is, on families is enormous and actually it's not just dealing with uh, a loved one having dementia, it's, it's, uh, it, it's all the other implications uh, because mobility often is affected by dementia so it means you can't go certain places, you, can't, you need help to go, just going to the loo um, is, is, it can be, can be a problem for, because you need to have a, somebody to look after them in case they fall over or, or so on. So so many aspects that, that um, I've come to, to understand and as a family we've come to realize um, that it, it, it really is uh, something that's quite devastating and more lives will be affected by dementia most likely than cancer actually and I've had cancer myself so um, it, 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 it's um, doing something about it um, is, is, yeah, is important to us all. Now, I, I, this is uh, orange, which was the traditional McLaren colour. Now, I must tell you my Ron Dennis story. I've probably told you before, but I'm going to tell it anyway. Uh, and I could claim to be one of the few people that have pushed Ron Dennis into anything. <laughs> and I did years and years ago. Ron actually drove one of the cars from the McLaren Museum uh, up the hill at the Festival of Speed 
and I was in the paddock and none of his mechanics were. So I helped him push it around the paddock and position it, uh, just because I happened to be there at the time. And he said thank you in a, in a very nice way. He, he didn't slip me a fiver, which he could have done. Um, but nevertheless, as I say, I can now claim I'm one of the few people that pushed Ron Dennis into anything. Yeah, it was. A, I think he was a great loss to McLaren and a great loss to Formula One. He was a very, um, so I'll say, not odd character, but had his very, very clear directions where he wanted the, the team to go. This car is in the original orange, which which dates back to the Bruce McLaren days, and uh, looks absolutely fine. It's, it's really good to see see the car. Uh, I think you're quite right in your analysis that uh, essentially McLaren has struggled since Ron was no longer there. Yes, Ron had uh, his peculiar sometimes ways of doing things, but he always had a good reason for what he was doing. And under his uh, management, tutelage, whatever you like to call it, the team were very, very successful. Um, And since he departed the team has not been successful. You can draw whatever conclusions you like from that statement. Yeah, I think he, he was a very fastidious person. He wanted everything to be kept clean, tidy, everything in its right place, um, similar to my old boss at West Surrey Racing. Dick Bennett's is the same. He's very, very attention to detail orientated. Yes. Thank you for that, those few kind words. <laughs> he, they, they both love their motorsport. They both love their their team. They want them to do well, and they want everything to be presented in the right way. Um, and that's what Ron was all about, and uh, Dick's the same. Uh, what have we got coming in here? This is a, a relatively current Le Mans car. Yeah, that's... Uh, I, I believe it's a um, LMP2, I'm not sure. It's uh, very, very big. <laughs> Looks a bit unwieldy when it's being pushed, but probably goes quite well on a track. Designed for endurance racing, not uh, flat-out fastest time laps. But, uh, yeah, the aerodynamics, again, totally different to what we see on anything else. Um, desi- but, but intended to last a 12- or 24-hour race, yeah. which is... Uh, a highly specialised area of any racing car. It's also a very big ask for mechanical parts to last 24 hours to be punished the way they are at Le Mans. The slightest slip up, if you get a stone through a radiator, which could cause you all sorts of grief, and you're only allowed to do certain things in the pit lane, then the car has to be taken back into the garage, which obviously costs you time. And then you end up trying to catch yourself up. Those that um, keep going toward to the end are the ones that are going to win the longer you're on the track just caught my eye I'm, I'm gazing through one of the uh, pit doors all the pit doors are open today and that's a Shelby GT350 Mustang just about to go on track uh, and there's a Shelby Cobra we saw earlier also uh, about to go on track and uh, I think it's a series 2 or 3 Lotus Elan in front of it Capri behind it it's a, a mini behind it a semi lightweight Jaguar it's an incredible mixture of cars here. Uh, one of the Aston Martins, in fact, the Aston Martin we were talking about a little while ago, that's gone out. In fact, three Aston Martins, four Aston Martins, 
all one after the other going out. Notice how many of these cars have got Goodwood scrutineering stickers on them. It looks like a lot of them were at the members' meeting this past weekend as well. There goes the Shelby. There goes the Shelby Cobra. Uh, all in uh, pristine in white. Actually looks wonderful, doesn't it? It's nice to be able to walk through the pits. This is, this is not normally uh, something that, even on a race day, you could do. A, because the teams are very protective of their space. Uh, and they don't want you to see what they're actually doing a lot of the time. Uh, but also the organisers wouldn't ordinarily allow you to do so either. Let's see what we've got coming up here. Another one of these massive transporters. I mean, these are sort of f one size transporters now. In fact, some of them, some of these historic teams are buying XF1 transporters and uh, using those. What have we got here? Sports racers going in the back there. Lotus. Right, we'll, we'll move on out, but that's a wonderful sound. Lotus F1 car from, uh, I guess, from the what the 60s? You reckon, Phil? Yeah, it's a 60s Formula car. Could be a Formula Two, or Formula Three, making a lot of noise. Two people have got uh, ear defenders on. The other chap's got his fingers in his ears. <laughs> and he's the one standing closest to the engine. So um, it may well be he's been doing this a long time and the damage is already done. And he no longer cares. But uh, beautiful car. And an awful lot of them. I think we've more or less finished our pit lane tour now. An awful lot of the guys are packing up, sort of ready to go home. Uh, diving back into the pits. I want to see what this car is. Beautiful red. And I've got a feeling that that, well, I'm, I'm not, it's not what I thought it was. It's in fact a Maserati. Is this the Fable 250F? I think it is. I think it might be. I was just looking at the large drum brakes. No disc brakes on this. Drum brakes. And cross-ply tyres come back into the equation again. Um, I can't believe that this was driven around as fast as it actually was at the time. But just an amazing piece of engineering. The bodywork, front engine, exhaust, so you can keep your left arm warm. Um, I mean, this, this was one of the most successful racing cars of all time. Uh, I've never heard uh, a top driver uh, criticised this car. It's a car that uh, Sterling said was like a dancing partner. Let's say one of the most uh, strictly in terms of, in terms of race wins, one of the all-time most successful F1 cars and Formula Libra cars. Had an incredibly long career, way after everybody else. One of those very, very late cars that went from front engine to rear engine. Uh, and just about everybody that drove it loved it. Yeah, I think in that era, 
John Cooper was the one that brought out the rear engine Formula One cars, which um, basically made all these front engine cars obsolete. But these cars in their day were just unbeatable, both in design and the way they were engineered. Italian, Italian engineering in, in that era was second to none. Yeah, it was absolutely ex- extraordinarily uh, well-designed, well-engineered. I mean, it's, it's like clockwork. It's that very well put together. Um, but, of course, then when the, uh, when the engines went in the back and John Cooper was the, largely the progenitor of that uh, major change and then Sir Jack said, well, that's what destroyed my hearing. <laughs> yeah. With the engine so close behind him, he had no choice. And uh, in his latter years, he did have um, two hearing aids. I have two hearing aids myself. Uh, again, through working in motorsport and in the motor trade for many years. But uh, high-revving race engines don't do your hearing a lot of good. No, indeed, that's true. And that's probably why mine's going away. But, well, I think we've seen here today, it's just a wonderful collection of motor cars. Some being driven just for show, some being driven in anger, and the one that was particularly noisy there has just uh, closed down. But we've had a a great day here. I hope um, we've given you a a flavour of it. We will do some more of these, but what what a nice way to end, as we shortly will, this um, review of the launch day for the Silverstone Classic. You know, very much uh, one of the fastest growing classic historic car racing events in the world. It's on in July. Look up their website for tickets. But we end a run through the garage with, well, certainly one of the finest uh, racing cars of all time. And I've enjoyed my run through these today. Uh, and what a delight to finish with this car. Yeah, me too. This It's fantastic to see all the cars that are here, the preparation the engineering that goes into keeping these things running is phenomenal the the teams that are that are putting in the work to keep these things running are a credit they're a credit to themselves it's just unbelievable and if you've got a chance to come and see them have a go it's just fantastic to see old cars and hear old engines when in, when engines were built and designed on paper no computers involved it was all designed, imagination and proper engineering. And there's a proper engine. <laughs> that's a, that's a, a very quick Capri. So, have you enjoyed your day at Silverstone? Yes, very much so. Good. Well, I hope you've... Uh, I've certainly enjoyed mine. UK Motor Talk, a first-take media production.